Bible in the pew there. These are some of Paul's last words. He knows he's about to die. That comes up in chapter 4. He knows his days are coming to an end. And so think of this as like a father before he passes and what he says to his child, his son or his daughter before they, they go. And notice it's about remembering. So 2 Timothy 2, starting at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And now we turn to second, or first Chronicles, first Chronicles Chapter 17, 18, 19, 20. Don't fear. We will make it. Chapter 17 through 20. It's page 348 of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 17 especially is flowing out of everything that has happened in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. And so now comes this revival and reformation that lit up in chapters 15 and 16. Now David is beginning to work out the applications and implications of that revival. And it starts here in verse 1 of chapter 17. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of Yahweh is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you built, not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be, un- and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that Yahweh will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I, will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh and said, Who am I, O Yahweh God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And so David continues to dwell upon the amazing grace of God in his prayer. In the first part, in the second part, he says, And so all that you have promised, do. That's chapter 17. 
chapter 18, 19, and 20 now show you some of the ways that God fulfills his promise to David. And it is one victory after another from verse chapter 18, verse 1 on down. And notice the language at the end of verse 6. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And that language again comes up at the end of verse 13. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And it's one success after another. What I've summarized for you, what I've read to you from 1 Chronicles, and what I've read to you in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Reliable God, come now. And may our hearts be filled with your kingdom, righteousness, peace, and Holy Spirit-infused joy as we lodge a while in this scripture passage. We ask this in communion with your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting and don't know, on the back of the worship guide are the sermon notes. There's a sermon outline, and there's lots of space to write notes. And then there's some questions at the end. So keep your Bibles open there to 1 Chronicles 17 through 20 so you'll see what I'm talking about. You know, too many times as Christians, we gauge, we gauge our own personal piety by hyperactivity. Specifically, the hyperactivity of others. We find ourselves ashamed that we're not as engaged as Sister Julie Jumpabout. Or we're not as engrossed in kingdom things as Brother Frank Frenzy. And of course, as you know, that causes loads and loads of problems. One problem is that it causes competition when there should be no competition. But the other side of the problem is that it causes unnecessary guilt and shame. An unnecessary guilt and shame that is inappropriate before God. You see, David, David was a man of action. You want to talk about a hyper-achieving man, this is it. Mr. Overachiever man, David. He's busy going and blowing all the time. And that is what makes 1 Chronicles 17 a breath of fresh air. And so to get to enjoy that breath of fresh air, we begin with David's desire. It's chapter 17, 1 through 2, David's desire. Notice what David desires to do. It's actually working out what's already begun in chapter 15 and 16. And all that happened before is tempering and triggering his actions now. He wants God to be close by. God's ark is already now in Jerusalem. So he is going to begin a program to start pulling together all kinds of resources to build God a temple. But at this point, he just wants to build him a temple. And so he asks his prophet He asked the prophet Nathan, should I build him a temple? And Nathan says, well, God's with you, go for it. Thankfully, God spoke up immediately after that. But that's David's desire. His desire is actually coming out of all that he's experienced in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. What you have here in person with David is what Jehoshaphat will say over in chapter 2 Chronicles 20, 20. Here we go, right here's our glasses. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. Right, here it is being fleshed out. David believes the Lord and he wants to know what God has to say and he's ready to do it. You have here 2 Chronicles 20.20 in person. 
And so that's David's desire. God and his direction. And so the revival and reformation that encompassed David's good sentiment and the majority agreement and the unitive purpose and his humble submission to God and God's directions is now moving upward, onward, and outward. David is seeking God and he is seeking his direction and, so, and doing so with humble submission. And so then comes Yahweh's decree. Starting at verse 3 through 15 is Yahweh's decree. And if you've got the sermon notes there, you should notice I also put in there chapter 18, 19, and 20. And I'll explain that in a minute. But all of that is working out the Lord's decree. So here's Yahweh's decree. And it's very simple. It's in verse 4 and verse 12 is the very heart of this decree. Verse 4. David said, I want to build you a house. And the Lord comes to him in verse 4 and says, you will not build me a house to dwell in. But then verse 12. Instead, Bubba, I'm going to build your house. Isn't that like God? Right? We want to overachieve. You can't do it without us, Lord. And he says, y'all, watch this. Right? And then it's this response. No, you want to build me a house, you're not going to do it, but I'm going to build your dynasty. I'm going to go far beyond even your imagination. And so then what God does here, starting in verse, in verse uh, 3 through 15, is he lays out his decree, and it comes in three parts. It's what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing, and what the Lord will do. There's the three parts. What he has done, is doing, and will do. So what has he done? It's verse 7 and 8. I have brought my people out of their enslavement, and I have given them a land, and I took you, you were a sheep, you were a sheep herder. And I took you from that lowly condition, and I made you king. Look at what I have done for you, despite maybe what you deserve. Here's what the Lord has done. But then he goes further. Here's what the Lord is doing. Now, a lot of it is in future tense, but it's already beginning to happen in the present. And basically what the Lord is doing for David is making a name for him, keeping his people in a secure place, defeating all of David's enemies, and establishing a dynasty for him, building his house. Four parts to the things that God is doing for David. So then, as you keep that in mind, you glance over to chapter 18, 19, and 20, and you have multiple overwhelming examples of Yahweh's promise being played out. He says, I will subdue your enemies before you. I'll make, a name, I'll make your name great, and I will give my people a, sa- a safe place. And that's what you have going on in chapter 18, 19, and 20. Chapter 18, verse 1, the Philistines, who are God resistors, kingdom resistors, and God opposers, they come against David, victory against the Philistines. Chapter 18, verse 2, Moab, who, is, who are kingdom resistors and God opposers, come against David, God's Messiah, and are defeated, victory. Chapter 18, verses 3 through 8, Hadadazer, who's a very tenacious Henri obstinate fellow, so we'll meet him again in chapter 19. But Hadadazer comes who is also a kingdom resistor and God opposer, and he comes against David. And notice the language at the end of verse 6, Yahweh gave David victory wherever he went. Then comes kind of an offshoot, something else, but it's still part of God subduing David's enemies and making David's name famous. And it's there in verses 
uh, verses 9 through 11. Tu or Tau or whatever you want to pronounce, T-O-U. That's his name, though. King of Hamath. He's quite happy that David is getting successful, that the kingdom is growing. And so, too, the king of Hamath comes to David and says, Woohoo! He pulled a Steve McEwen on him. Woohoo! Sign me up. Align me with the kingdom. God's enemies being subdued through conversion. God is subduing David's enemies and giving his people a safe place and elevating David's name. And then you come to chapter 19. And there are three waves of resistance from the same group, the Ammonites. And there are three defeats of the Ammonites in chapter 19, verse 1 through chapter 20, verse 3. They're an obstinate people. Henri, they do not want the kingdom and they don't want this God over them and they don't want his Messiah and they're going to do everything they can until there's nobody left if necessary. And so in chapter 19, towards the end there, and when the servants of Adadazer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became subject to him. And then finally, in chapter 20, verses 4 through 8, the Philistines again, they're also pretty obstinate. In fact, they even recruit all of Goliath's Cousins and uncles, all the other giants. And lo and behold, it says at the end of verse t- chapter 20, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. What God promised in chapter 17, I will make you a great name. I will put you, your people in a safe place and I will defeat your enemies before you is being played out. Immediately being played out for us in chapters 18, 19, 20. The second part of this is when God says to David as well, he says, and I will build you a house. I will set you up a dynasty. That also burbles to the surface when you look at chapter 18 and verse 14. David reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. What is the point of it all? Put it simply this way, and you've heard me say this, A hundred times. And I hope when you walk out of here, you will say it a hundred times. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. Say it again. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. That's the point of chapter 17, 18, 19, and 20. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. Then comes the third part of the Lord's decree, and it's verses 11 through 14. It's what the Lord will do. And very simply, he promises to raise up an offspring of David, a son of David, whom he will declare to be his own son, and through him the temple will be built. In fact, several years later, when David is rehearsing this whole moment, especially verse 11 through 14, to his son Solomon... David says these words in chapter 22, verses 9 and 10. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Shlomo. That's what it is in the Hebrew. Shlomo, Solomon. But listen to that name, Shlomo. Some of you are really astute, and you realize, hey, wait, Shlomo, that's that's based on the word shalom. And you would be absolutely right. Peace boy. His name will be Peace boy. Shlomo, Solomon. And sure enough, I will give peace 
and quiet to Israel in his days, and he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne forever. And so Yahweh's decree comes. And it fills out and it steams onward and forward. Emphasizing for us so that we never forget. Please, Lord, may we never forget what the reliable God says. The reliable God does. Now, even though some of the things in chapter 17 have not happened at the moment it's said here. Yet David is certain that it will And so then comes David's delight, David's delight, and it starts in verse 16 through verse 27. Notice the very first thing it says, David went in and sat before the Lord. David sat before the Lord. David put his body into his begging. He put his posture into his praying. We read that verse, and as good Westerners, it doesn't impress us, and it should shock the socks off of us. Because what do we do with most of our praying? What do we do with our bodies? Come on, you can, you can interact here. You sit, right? Look, I mean, we sit through most of our prayers. But guess what? In Scripture, almost no one sits in prayer. Do you know what their normal positions are from Genesis to Revelation? They kneel on their knees when they pray. Or they fall prostrate on their face, flat out, like a pancake. Or they get on their knees and put their face to the floor. Or they stand up on their knees and raise their hands. Or they just stand up on their feet and raise their hands. Because your body is the nonverbal part of your communication with God. And so for David to sit before the Lord is amazing. In fact, dear friends, it's so phenomenal, it's the only time anyone in, Bi- in the Bible is ever recorded as sitting in prayer. Let me say it to you again, because I didn't see too many heads not here. It's the only time that anyone is ever recorded as sitting in prayer in the Bible. David. And it tells you that this is a very significant situation. David, for David to be sitting is a huge physical prayer pronouncement, especially for Mr. Hyperactivity and Overachiever Boy. His body and his begging are saying the same thing. Mr. Man of Action, Mr. Overachiever Man is doing nothing but resting and trusting. Body and begging, posture and petition are deeply connected and fittingly fleshed out. Dear friends, just as a side application, consider that when you are praying. Don't be afraid to put your body into it. Think about what you're praying about and what would you normally be doing? Are you anxious? What do you normally do when you're anxious? Pace the floor maybe, right? Besides chew your nails. I chew my nails. But pace the floor. Right? Why not pace the floor then and tell God your anxiety? It fits. Your body and your begging are going hand in glove. What about begging, really begging? Dear God, I'm praying for so-and-so as she lay dying. I beg you, Lord. What about getting on your knees and praying your body, saying amen to your begging? Consider that. But also, my dear friends, 
What you see David doing here is kind of like baptism. Think about it for a minute. Your body is involved in baptism, and yet what are you doing in baptism? I don't care if you're getting dunked, and I've dunked a few in my days. I don't care if you're getting poured on or sprinkled on. What are you doing when you're being baptized? Receiving. Cindy said nothing. Did anybody else want to say nothing? Yes! Very good. Gold star for all of you. You're doing nothing. Why? Because what is baptism doing? Baptism is a proclamation, physical proclamation of the gospel. And what did you do to earn the gospel? Tell me that. Nothing. And it's a picture and a display of the very grace of God. What did you do to earn God's goodness and grace? Tell me that. So what are you doing in baptism? Nothing. Your body is involved. You're resting in the good grace of God. Oh, yes. I got more baptism things to say. Hang in there. And so then David, verse 16 through 22, David then spells out, spells out God's persistent goodness. And it's really interesting because notice how he begins. Who am I? That you would even consider me. Sounds just like Psalm 8. Who is man that you would consider him or the son of man that you take notice of him? David truly has moved into the place of humility. As I quoted for you last week from St. Augustine, and I sent it to you in an email this week, David has accepted the fact that the way of Christ, the way of God is first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. And as you're going along, it's humility before you, humility beside you, humility fencing you in behind, because if humility is not the centerpiece of what you're doing, then pride, said Augustine, would come and rip out of your hands all those good works. Notice David's humility. Why? Because he knows that God's steadfast love endures forever, that God's habit God's habit is to show mercy. And so he spells out God's persistent goodness. But then lastly, notice verse 23 through 27. He sits, David sits on the promises of God. He comes at the end of this prayer. He says, you promised all this, then do what you've declared. You've said all of this you're going to do. Well, proceed with what you've promised. Produce what you have pledged. That's his prayer at the end. He's sitting there on the promises. Why isn't that a great way to pray? To stop and actually sit on the promises. Let me have a little fun and mess up an old hymn that many of us grew up with. Sitting on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing, sitting on the promises of God. Sitting, sitting, sitting on the promises of God, my Savior. Sitting, sitting, I'm sitting on the promises of God. That's what David is doing, sitting on the promises of God. Trusting in God's faithfulness, not his own. Could it be that we have a little something to learn from David? 
well, what's the relevance of this whole episode from chapter 17 through chapter 20? Well, for those who were coming out, remember who this is originally written for, those who were coming out from multiple generations of exile where they have been enslaved, they have been beleaguered, they have been demeaned, they've been demoralized, they have nothing, they are nobody in the eyes of the state, they're the bottom of the barrel. As they're coming back, as they hear this episode rehearsed for them, they may likely have grimaced when first hearing this story. Because they had nothing. They had no king. There was nobody from David's line that looked like he was ever going to sit on any throne of anybody's kingdom. They had no to almost no successes to build on. So what good would this episode have been to them? Lots of things, but one singular aspect is this, is it would have reminded them of the undying, unfailing promise of God. Contrary to all appearances, that David will have a son to sit on his throne. This episode would have challenged them to put their faith in the faithful God, not in their circumstances and in all the empirical evidence and data. To put their faith instead in the faithful God. And to remember what the reliable God says. The reliable God does. And no amount, no amount of decades and defeat and disenfranchisement and dejection and disillusionment and distance would ever get in the way of God's faithful fulfilling of his promise. Nothing will get in his way. Tell me they didn't need to hear that. And sure enough, all the way through the Old Testament, we have this promise coming back round and round and always pointing God's people forward. We read it, for example, before the confession of sin in Ezekiel. I will make them one nation in the land and the mount, on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. My servant David. David, by the time Ezekiel was written, this is from Ezekiel. By the time Ezekiel was written, David had been dead for 300 years. So he's talking about David's descendant. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. One shepherd. Hmm. Didn't somebody call themselves the good shepherd once? Wasn't there somebody that said something about, you know, I know my sheep. I call them all by name and a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. School. Wasn't there someone who said, I'm the good shepherd and all my people are in my hand. And no matter what, no one will take them from my hand. Did somebody say that? And is he a descendant of David? Yes. Amazing. Well, you heard it when Pastor West was reading the call to worship from from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. A passage, by the way, that James will refer to in Acts 15 as proof and evidence that God is rebuilding his kingdom with David, Jesus, at the center And now Gentiles legitimately have an equal standing in God's kingdom. Here's how Amos 9.11 goes. In that day I will raise up the booth, the household, the dynasty of David that has fallen. 
and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and build it as in the days of old. Oh, and sure enough, Jesus being a descendant of David is a centerpiece of the good news by which we are saved. Paul talks about it at the beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 1. You know, Romans chapter 1, we all like to run immediately to verse 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? We like to go there. But we seem to miss really a centerpiece of the whole book of Romans. And it's the first four verses. Listen. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God uh, in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ the Lord. You put it this way, if, David was not, if Jesus was not the descendant of David, he cannot be the savior of the world or the Lord. Because it means the reliable God failed. Oh yeah, centerpiece of the gospel. And that's why Paul, in some of his last words to young Timothy, says what he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. When he said, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and offspring of David as preached in my gospel. That would have been the relevance to them and how relevant is that to us? It's very relevant, but let me go further. What would be the relevance of this passage for us 3,100 years after it happened and 2,400 years after it was written? What would be the relevance to us? Well, I think Paul reminds us in Romans 15, verse 7, when he said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that we, through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, might have hope. So taking Paul's direction here, and you look at chapter 17, 1 Chronicles 17 through 20, what in this true historical event instructs us? What is it in this true historical retelling of this moment builds our endurance? What is it in this passage, in this story that fills us with encouragement so that we actually have some hope? Well, if you're asking those questions, and I hope that you are, then I'm glad you are because I want to tell you a few things. And the first one, you should have seen it coming. What the reliable God says The reliable God does. If you walk out of here and don't remember that, I failed. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. And no amount of distance or disease or decades or defeat or legislation or judicial decisions or executive actions or any of those things will ever stop him. Maybe, just maybe, to use a new analogy here, because I like this kind of cooking. I don't do it, but I like to eat it. Maybe, just maybe, we need to sit in the crock pot of this truth and stew a bit. Let it marinate our souls until our souls take on a whole new flavor. While it cooks out all of that sour and dour disbelief. And deeply flavors us with the savory spice and aroma of Christ. 
Maybe we need to sit in this crock pot a while. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. But secondly, sit on the promises. I'm not saying inactivity altogether. David didn't stop doing things afterwards, but everything he did, as Pastor West was mentioning earlier, as he was talking about the offering, everything David did from this point on was a result of and reaction to and response to the amazing grace and goodness of God. But sit on the promises. Are you tired and exhausted with all of your activism and all of your aerobic attempts to achieve? Are you finding that the fretting and the fuming in your heart is getting the best of you? Then sit. Sit on the promises. And point it out to the Lord. It's okay, he's not ashamed and he's not going to be surprised because he already knew it. Lord, you know how achievement-oriented I am and how I just go and blow all day and end of the night, how my whole self-worth is wrapped up in all the things that I do on my time and my accomplishments. And yet, Lord, all that I've accomplished feels like spinning wheels, slinging mud. And now I'm stuck in a rut. And yet you've promised, and like David... I'm sitting on your promises, throwing myself into your hands. It's okay to do that. It's biblical, sitting on the promises. But also today, my friends, we get to ba- I get to baptize some people. And I want you to remember and recall that baptism is just about this kind of thing, sitting on the promises of God. You know, I think we forget that. But that's really what we're doing. And I've already talked about some of that, but let me put it to you a different way. There was, for years, there was an old bumper sticker. And it said, it went like this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Who's the centerpiece of that bumper sticker? Whose achievement does it really lean on? No, I believe it. Finally, some wiseacre, maybe he was reformed, who knows, put out a new bumper sticker and it said, God said it, that settles it. And that, my friends, is what's going on with baptism, right? What the reliable God says, the reliable God does, God has promised. So let's rehearse some of those promises just briefly. He started out with Abraham. And you remember the promise to Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to be the God of your offspring after you. And I want you to put this sign on your body. I want this sign on your body of my faithfulness, of my covenant. Now notice that that promise does not exclude the fact that sometimes in God's family there are some Esau's and Ishmael's. But notice the promise. It's huge. I'll be your God and God of your children after your offspring, after you. And you have offspring that will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. And that's really most of the Old Testament showing us the offspring of Abraham growing in numbers, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, sometimes lesser and lesser and lesser, and then bigger and bigger and lesser and lesser. Anyways, it's there. But the big moment comes in Galatians in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. In Christ, 
You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Oh my goodness, baptism is actually about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Hammering home, shouting to all of us who are deaf as doornails. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. And it's a sign, not of my faith. It's a sign of his faithfulness. Let me say it again. It's not a sign of my faith. It's a sign of his faithfulness. If it's a sign of my faith, it's a sign of my having achieved. It's then a sign of my having achieved. Oh no, baptism fits right in with this sermon, with this passage. Preaching to us the gospel and the grace of God. Preaching to us again of God's faithfulness, not my own faith. Today we're going to be do, do some baptizing. And maybe you don't remember yours for whatever reason. Maybe you do you remember yours. But as you watch this bab, these baptisms today, lift up your heart and remember you were marked with the promise of God, of God's faithfulness. You belong to Jesus by the grace of God. And he will fulfill his promise. What the reliable God says the reliable God does. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you so much for this episode. We pray that you would help us because we are just tone deaf and stoned deaf. Oh Lord, help us that we would live all the rest of our days hunkered down in this truth, cooking in this crock pot of truth. What the reliable God says, the reliable God does. Cook out of us all of the dour and sour unbelief. And savor us. Season us with the savory aroma of Christ. Lord, bless us now as we confess our own faith and as we receive new members and baptize. Be honored this day in Jesus' name. Amen.